Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in marine science and conservation to ask them your questions about sharks and the oceans. I've just got back from an exhausting but very fun and really really inspiring couple of weeks with the Save Our Seas team as we attended a couple of events that the foundation was sponsoring. I was able to record quite a few episodes at those events with some really great guests in person which was just so exciting after years of recording the podcast over Zoom and online and I can't wait to share them with you over the next couple of weeks. Today's episode is actually one of those episodes. I had a few days in London in between events and I was lucky enough to be able to visit the Natural History Museum and meet with one of its creators, Emma Bernard. Emma is a paleoichthyologist, which is a little bit of a tongue twister, but it basically means that she is an expert in fossil fish, and that includes sharks. Now, I've wanted to do an episode on prehistoric sharks for a very long time. It's a little bit of a personal fascination of mine, and I cannot tell you how excited I was to be able to go and meet Emma in person and indulge my nerdiness. She was even kind enough to show me behind the scenes to the collections, which is an absolute treasure trove of fossils and other artifacts that most people don't get to see. In most museums, what you see in the displays is only a small portion of what the museum actually has, and the collections are where most of their items are archived. Emma's job is to look after the fossil fish collections, and this place is a shark lover's dream. There are cabinets full of drawers upon drawers of shark teeth, dorsal spines, fossil imprints, and all manner of things from millions of years ago. So before our interview, Emma showed me some of the incredible items hidden away in the collections, and I was even able to hold a megalodon tooth, which was actually bigger than my hand. It was very, very cool. One of my favourite facts about sharks and their relatives is that they have been around in some form for about 450 million years. Now, to put that in perspective, we think that modern humans appeared just 315,000 years ago. So we're a relatively recent addition in comparison. But even if you look at the dinosaurs, sharks were around almost 200 million years before them. And sharks are even older than trees, geologically speaking, which is pretty insane to think about. And with all of that time to evolve, you can bet there's some pretty odd ancestors of the sharks that we know today. On today's episode, Emma walks us through the evolutionary history of sharks and their relatives, stopping along the way to hone in on some particular species who were really pushing the boundaries of what it meant to be a chondrichthian. For example, a chimera with a circular sole of teeth inside its jaw, and a chimera that has an ironing board for a dorsal fin. She also tells us what else was going on at that time, so mass extinctions, giant marine reptiles, and huge monumental changes in climate. And, of course, we spend some time talking about the largest species of predatory shark to roam the Earth, Megalodon. It was such a pleasure to chat with and learn from Emma. She has been passionate about prehistoric life from an early age and that passion really shines through. She has over 12 years of experience working in museum curation and her job is basically traveling the world to find pieces of really ancient puzzle and trying to put all of those pieces together to paint a picture of what a natural world looked like millions of years ago. How cool is that? Okay, we have over 400 million years of evolutionary history to cover. So without further ado, grab your Indiana Jones hats and get ready to go back in time. Let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Emma, and welcome to the Whole Tooth podcast. Uh, hi there, thank you for having me. You don't need to thank me for having you, you've just shown me around 
some of the amazing collections. We are at the Natural History Museum at the moment and I have been fortunate enough to not only hold a megalodon tooth in my hand, which was extremely cool, um, but also see some of the incredible things that you have in the collection. So thank you so much for that and thank you for taking time to chat to us about prehistoric sharks. I'm so excited to dive into this. Um, But we like to start every podcast by getting to know our guest a little bit. And we start every single podcast with the same question, which is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So I think one of my earliest memories is from the area that I grew up. So I'm from Fife in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up quite close to the coast. So often when I would go there, I would always be clambering up rocks uh, digging in the sand, basically trying to see what I could what I could find. Mm-hmm. You know, could I find any fossils or perhaps picking up some shells, uh, bringing them back home and trying to make my own little collection of them uh, <laughs> in my house. Um, but also, I think one of the most memorable experiences for me and was a sort of a lifelong dream was getting to go whale watching off the coast of Australia, which was something mm. that I w- had wanted uh, to do since I was a small since about sort of five years old mm-hmm. and then finally got to do that a couple of years ago and it was just fantastic to see these amazing animals in their natural habitats you know reaching the surface and just swimming wow. in, the, in the water what kind of whales was it were you seeing back whales that i got to see and that was just Incredible. absolutely fantastic because so i can remember watching like nature documentaries as a kid and seeing being fascinated by whales because they were so large and you know obviously living uh, for decades you know just imagining what did they get to see what did they explore yeah so um yeah that was a lifelong dream come true amazing (laughs) amazing and you started off you know climbing rocks and exploring your local coastline but how did you get to be curator of fossil fish for the natural history museum so i think really um i've never really grown up out of that dinosaur stage as a kid so when I was five years old, I always wanted to be a paleontologist. So either a paleontologist, a ballerina, or to work at McDonald's. <laughs> I think as a five-year-old, I thought I would just get to eat all the Happy Meals and play in the ball pit all day. Um, and I always did dancing growing up as well, so that was much more of a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I used to teach ballet for a while, but it was always paleontology and fossils um, that really fascinated me. You know, just trying to work out, you know, what were these animals and plants that lived hundreds of millions of years ago? What did they look like? What did they, uh, how did they interact with each other? Why are they no longer around? I just remember being absolutely fascinated by that. So I knew that it was always a career within paleontology mm-hmm. that I wanted uh, to do. So it wasn't until I got into university and I, um, that was my first time behind the scenes at a museum. That was at the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow. And I walked into yeah. the collection stores and I can remember just being gobsmacked at the sheer number of specimens. Because walking into any museum, there's lots of amazing exhibits, but it's only ever the tip of the iceberg that you have, uh, that you see on display. Behind the scenes, there's hundreds, thousands of specimens. Mm-hmm. So that was where I then realised there was this whole other world I hadn't mm-hmm. properly explored, um, doing museum work and curation particularly that I was really interested in. So it was from there I knew I wanted to work with um, fossils um, in a museum setting and um, going through university and get more experience doing volunteering work um, at Bristol Museum and um, research on collections. Mm-hmm. And my master's project was on actually the whole uh, fin to limb transition. So the whole transition <sighs> from fish in the water up to um, animals up on land. Wow. So really when, you know, everything sort of came together all at the right time and an opportunity presented it itself here at the Natural History Museum in London uh-huh. and I was very fortunate to get that role. Wow. Wow. Oh, th- tell us a little bit about your Masters. So what specifically were you were you looking at there? So during my Masters, um, we know that there was fish, like, fishy fish that were in the yeah. seas and uh-huh. there was animals up on land and for a long time scientists have been trying to basically piece together this sort of gap mm. so you know where are these fossils and um, these intermediate fossils so part of my uh, research was trying to was basically going through all of the literature and mm-hmm. um, recording where all these um, fish and also early tetrapods had been found and mm-hmm. um, what had been found and then 
calculating and looking at those rocks as well to see where earth uh, where else on the earth might we find more additional fossils so basically kind of trying to work out how much more out there could be discovered so by doing that um, I was reading lots of papers describing all these new finds mm -hmm. as well and then becoming more more fascinated and interested in that whole fish to limb transition so humans we all evolved from fish our great 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 grandparents were fish and when you look at some of these fossils you can actually see and um, the bones almost match our bones as well so we have fossils in the collection that are um, have a collarbone, very some you know very similar yeah. to our collarbones. Mm -hmm. They have our arm bones that are all almost identical, but instead of having fingers, they have um, a fin. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so fascinating. So just being able yeah. to see that side by side, that was something that I got. I found really interesting. Uh huh. So I was very fortunate to get to work with some some of that amazing material, and yeah. now I'm responsible for it at the museum. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Because the coming the Natural History Museum feels like a bit of a like mecca, even for someone like myself that doesn't work specific doesn't work specifically in fossils. But it, it's just this incredible place where you know it must have felt so amazing to be able to get to work here. Um, and I just wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what your job actually entails. I know there's lots of different sides to it. Yes, so I'm among the curators here. So there's about 350 scientists that work behind the scenes at the mm -hmm. Natural History Museum, um, all doing different types of research, looking after the specimens, whether that those be fossils or recent, um, and also working um, with some of the instruments, so like microscopes, CT scanners, for mm -hmm. example. But my job as a curator is kind of similar, I guess, to a librarian, but instead of looking after books, I look after fossils. Mm -hmm. So I need to know what things are, where they came from, how old they are, how did we acquire them. And I basically help um, about 200 researchers from all over the world that want to access those collections. So whether that be um, they come to visit the collections and I assist them with their research here, um, or perhaps I might take measurements and take pictures of fossils to mm -hmm. if they can't come visit the collections. I also work on exhibitions. Um, both inside the Natural History Museum and also touring exhibitions. Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate and um, I get to travel the world and dig up fossils for a living, which I have to say is probably one of the best parts of the job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think that's really special because I, I'm out there, I'm finding the fossils. And that's the great thing about fossil hunting is that you're the first person to ever see that fossil. Which is mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh-huh. So then bringing them back into the collection, maybe doing some preparation, so removing the rock in order to see the actual fossil, the bone itself, um, and then doing the research, you know, trying to work out, oh, what is it then? Is it something new? Is it something that we already know about? Um, and also one of the great parts about the job is also doing outreach. So speaking to members of the public all mm -hmm. about what we do at the Natural History Museum and uh, hopefully inspiring other people to get involved in the natural world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's every... I mean, I would still consider myself, I haven't done this for a job, but I would still say I definitely never got out of the dinosaur phase. Um, and a lot of people say this either. We were speaking to David Schiffman on the podcast, I think for last season, um, and he said that there was two phases. There was either shark phase or dinosaur phase, and most kids sort of pick one. But in actual fact, sharks were around longer than the dinosaurs were. So you could you could say that we're still technically in yeah. both. Um, but yeah, that's every child's dream is to be able to, you know, travel the world and go and find these, you know, discover these amazing fossils for the first time. And that's what you actually get to do as part of your job, yeah. um, which is really, really awesome. I'm very grateful that today um, you're going to sort of take us through shark evolution. Um, and I'm going to start us off on that because we have about 440 million years to cover, which is quite a long <laughs> period of time. But when did, I've, I've put it in quotation marks because, or, or, you know, when did sharks first appear or when did like shark-like forms start to appear in the fossil record? 
Yeah, so some of the earliest evidence for sharks or shark-like creatures, as you probably say, mm. as, as you correctly pointed out, was from about 450 million years ago. So that was during the Ordovician period. Mm. So what we can find there are some of their dermal denticles. So basically the, their skin yeah. that we can find preserved. Um, however, some scientists disagree about whether they're actually true shark dermal denticles or if maybe there's something different. Okay. So if we fast forward a few million years to about 420 to 410 million years ago, so to put that into context, that's 200 million years before dinosaurs were stomping around on land, We here we can see some of the earliest evidence of shark-like teeth. Mm. So again, there's a little bit about um, debate about whether they're true sharks mm-hmm. or if they're from shark-like animals. But most people sort of agree that they're probably are genuine shark's teeth there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one sort of time period that everybody agrees on is about 380 million years ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that's where we see uh, true sharks, um, whether that be their teeth or their scales, or actually sometimes um, near complete individuals. Yeah. And they resemble sharks that we have around today. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, even if it... I know, I know you said that there's still some debate about whether it's 450 or 380, but that still is a mind-boggling amount of time that these animals have been around and in pretty much, you know, the same format. Like, they haven't really changed all too much. I mean, there are some weird uh, adaptations, which we'll get <laughs> yes. into a little bit later on, but the basic, the basic idea is the same, yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah. I think that's one of the things that is just so fascinating about sharks um, is that they have been around for so long, like over 400 million years, and they're still around today. Uh-huh. So in some ways, as a paleoecologist, I'm quite lucky because um, the group of animals that I look after are still around today. Mm-hmm. So we can look at modern sharks and compare them to the fossil record yeah. to try and work out. Whereas some of my colleagues, their whole groups of animals are completely extinct <laughs> and they're just relying on the fossil evidence to try and piece together what yeah. they might have looked like. Yeah. I wonder if that's quite... I mean, I know a lot of the species that you know of, even in in fossil fish, are probably you know extinct by now, but at least we still have, you know, their their ancestors today to look at, as you said. But I wonder if it's quite sad being someone who's working on a species that just <laughs> they'll just never be they'll never be around again. Um, but anyway, back to sharks before yeah. I go off on a whole tangent. Um, I mean, we kind of touched on this in the previous question, but you know, sharks famously don't have bones, or at least you know, a skeleton that is would easily fossilize. Um, so how do we know about what sharks were around and when? So predominantly, um, the, sh- the fossil record for sharks are basically teeth. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, one shark might typically produce between about 20,000 to 40,000 teeth over the course of a lifetime. Mm. So the chances are that a few of them will become a fossil. So provided something doesn't you know, come along, maybe eat those teeth, it gets ground down, washed away that type of thing. However, to get the soft tissue and the cartilage preserved, um, you know, so perhaps your listeners at home, um, we have cartilage in our bodies, like in our ears. So if you wanted to wiggle your ear a li- little bit, it kind of moves around. Whereas if you were to move, try and move the middle of your arm, your mm. arm bone, it doesn't move because bone is obviously much thicker and denser than cartilage. So because of that, the bones in the teeth are much more likely to become fossils. But to get the soft tissue preserved, what would happen is the shark would die, would fall down to the bottom of the sea, mm. and ideally get buried very quickly in sediment, like mud and sand, in something like an anoxic environment. So there's no oxygen for other animals to come in, even bacteria, and start scavenging on the body. Mm-hmm. And under the right set of conditions, we can get that soft tissue or the cartilage and um, will become a, a fossil. So, um, so long as the seas aren't being, you know, being washed away, uh, that's when we get disarticulated remains, which is quite common. Mm-hmm. But to get a complete individual, ideally it needs to be um, buried very quickly and left undisturbed mm-hmm. for millions of years, basically, <laughs> to go through that whole fossilisation process. Yeah, so a really specific 
conditions that don't often yeah. happen. You basically sort of need everything to sort of line up mm-hmm. uh, the right sort of uh, chemical conditions as well and the right type of material mm-hmm. to get that soft tissue uh, preserved. Mm-hmm. And like you do have, so some things that you've brought to show me, which I'm going to have to try and describe because this is an audio medium, um, but we do actually have, a, you know, part of a shock vertebrae behind us as well, which is incredibly well preserved. Like you can even see the rings inside of it as well, which we can use to age the sharks yep. and things. Um, and for listeners, it's about the size of Emma's hand, this vertebrae. So can you explain kind of where this vertebrae came from? Yeah, so this is a vertebrae. It's sort of the size of like, I guess, a saucer perhaps, mm-hmm. um, very easily fits in the palm of my hand. It's preserved in 3D. So um, again, that's quite unusual. A lot of the fossils, especially with fish, I call them roadkill fossils because <laughs> they're just a flat <laughs> sort of squished <laughs> uh, fish on, on, on a rock, basically. But mm. to, again, to get that three dimensions preserved is a little bit rarer. Yeah. Because if you think about all the pressure of the sediment piling on top, Mm. it's likely to squish things. So this was buried very quickly. It's preserved in 3D. And this is from a shark um, that was swimming in the oceans, which is now Morocco, about 50 million years ago. And this Mm. fossil, these fossils in Morocco are just amazing, so beautiful. It's almost as if the animal died yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's awesome. We'll try and we'll try and get a video of this to put it on uh, social so that you guys can see. But yeah, you can even see. I don't know what these pots are called around the side here, but there's like um, you can. It, it's almost like if you got a bone today, basically, and you looked at it. That's yeah. that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. Except this is like fifty million years old. Yeah, exactly. So it's we've mad. got like um, little holes here, um, halfway through it, um, and that's where some of the nerves and tendons would pass through. So again, if I was to compare this fossil um, to a modern day shark vertebrae, yeah. it would look almost identical. Oh, it's insane. It's crazy. <laughs> it's so cool. And then also you've got um, an enormous tub of shark teeth just to <laughs> sort of give an impression as to how many sharks, uh, how many teeth uh, a shark will lose in its lifetime. And it's it's men- mental. Um, and then also we have some uh, fossilised poop as well. Yes. So um, <laughs> I mentioned that I do quite a bit, as part of my role, I do quite a bit of outreach. Yeah. Uh-huh. And one of the things that every kid loves is when I hand them over some uh, fossilised poo or coprolites to uh-huh. give it their scientific name. So basically the coprolites, it's fantastic, especially the parents' faces, they just go like, oh! But the kids are like, this is amazing! Um, is it worrying that I had the same reaction as the kid did? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's, when I get to hold them, I'm like, oh, this is really great, can I see your coprolite collection? <laughs> Off topic now. No, but, uh, yeah. yeah, the coprolites are great because... Again, we can learn from them. You know, it's a mm-hmm. piece of that ancient world. Mm. Um, often we can find bits of bone, maybe scales, worms. So we can work out what these ancient animals were eating 50, 100, 200 million years ago just by looking at their fossilised faeces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like, which is, is really cool. Um, and it's, it's almost like putting together like a really like having ancient pieces of a jigsaw and trying to put it all together like yeah exactly it's very much like sort of a, a detective you've yeah. got little bits of the puzzle and uh, by finding more fossils and um, visiting other museum collections you can slowly start to piece together what some of these ancient worlds um would have looked like yeah yeah amazing amazing stuff um and so what do some of the earliest sharks or what would they have looked like do we know so we think some of the earliest sharks, now this is going back about uh, 380, 400 million years ago, mm-hmm. they would have been relatively small, so maybe um, two, three metres or so in length, um, long and elongate or torpedo-like shape mm-hmm. um, as well. They would have had the dorsal fins that are you know, quite iconic, for most people think of sharks, yeah. and also the forked tail that we see of them today. So their body plan overall in general would have looked very similar to a lot of the sharks today um but more sort of that long elongate shape mm-hmm. uh, we've we've we chatted before um i had the pleasure of talking to you chewing your ear off for about an hour <laughs> while i was planning for this episode because it definitely isn't my area of expertise but luckily it is yours um and you gave me a couple of different 
periods in time for us to go through. And um, so we've talked about what some of the earliest sharks would have looked like, but then obviously from then they diversified and evolved over time as well. And some of these sharks people might be familiar with, but some of them they probably won't be. Um, and one in our earlier conversation, you mentioned that uh, the carboniferous, I can't even say that, carboniferous period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell it's not my area of expertise. Um, you said that that period was a time, uh, the time of the sharks. So what did you mean by that? Yes, so the Carboniferous period was about um, 359 million years ago. So this was, a lot of scientists refer to it as the golden age of sharks. Mm -hmm. And that's because during this time there was about 40 families of sharks started to evolve. Wow. So if we go back a little bit further back in time during the Devonian period, Mm -hmm. so this was um, about... 400, sorry, about 370 to 360 million years ago. The Devonian period, uh, there was, the seas were teeming with life. Mm-hmm. Um, leading up to the start of the Carboniferous period, there was a mass extinction event that happened. Now, during this time, it wasn't just one event that happened. It was several small little extinction events that gradually meant that a lot of these animals, um, so about 75% of all species, species went extinct and because of that that then opened up a whole um an environment for different types of shark to evolve and adapt uh, during that time so during the carboniferous basically there was no big other larger predators swimming around in the oceans so Mm. sharks could go away they could evolve that they could adapt and change Mm -hmm. and so during the carboniferous as i mentioned there was about 40 different families of sharks that were around Wow. Yeah, a lot. Yes. <laughs> a lot in other words. Um, and so one of them, um, one of them that I think our listeners might be familiar with is Helicoprian. Yeah. Was that from this period? Yes, yes. So Hel- um, Helicoprian um, is probably one of the, or sometimes referred to as the buzzsaw shark. <laughs> yeah. Sort of common name, I guess. Um, is a really strange looking individual. Uh-huh. Um, so people um, found it's tooth whirl, um, which is sort of spiral in shape and would have teeth sticking out. So very much resembling a buzzsaw that you might find in a wood workshop or something for cutting woods. Um, and when people were finding these fossils in the 1600s, 1700s, people had no idea what on earth this thing was. Mm-hmm. So there's interpretations and drawings um, where people thought this uh, tooth whirl was on the end of a tail, perhaps um, on the back of the animal, or even sticking at the front of its nose in some sort of weird protrusion. <laughs> uh, but over the centuries, as more of these fossils were found, and also as... Um, different uh, techniques have improved so things like ct scanning so if you've ever been to a hospital and broken a bone or to look inside mm-hmm. um inside you we now use a lot of medical um, equipment so things like x-rays ct scanning are common practice when we look at study fossils nowadays so there was a fossil from the states that was found and they put it into the ct scanner and basically they they realized from looking at the ct scans that this tooth whirl was actually its lower jaw and it was inside its mouth, so not sticking out in a big, you know, rotating <laughs> whirl, um, but actually inside of its mouth. Right. Um, and this was only maybe about uh, 15, 20 years ago, so quite recently, re- uh, geologically speaking, yeah. that we were able to work this out. Um, but it went extinct. Um, we don't really know why, possibly because it got too niche uh-huh. Uh, with um, where it was going um, but again we can also see that evolution in the collections mm-hmm. so we're very lucky here at the Natural History Museum to have such vast collections so we can actually see that slowly evolving in its ancestors wow, okay. into now what was we now knew what was Helicoprian the other really strange looking animal from this time is one called Stethacanthus. Mm-hmm. Um, again, so some viewers might have heard of this referred to as the iron and board shark <laughs> or the anvil shark. Um, and again, it's all to do with a strange protrusion on its back. So it had a modified uh, dorsal fin, which was the shape of an iron and board or an anvil, <laughs> basically. As you do. As you do. <laughs> um, and what we found is the more fossils we found, 
we realise it's actually only associated with the males oh, um, of the species. Right. So perhaps it was some sort of way of attracting a mate, perhaps a bit like a peacock, you know, <laughs> uh, flashing the feathers. Um, but yeah, so it was only associated with the males. Now, with both of these, I've mentioned them being sharks. Uh-huh. Up until quite recently, we thought that they were sharks. Mm-hmm. But again, the great thing about science, we find more fossils, we find new techniques to analyse them. We now realise that they're from shark-like animals, mm-hmm. actually a group called chimeras. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're sort of still... the. The shark name still stuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, um, I mean, I I do this all the time on the podcast just because it's easier to say shark than it is to say shark, ray, skates and chimeras, which is just a, a tongue twister. It's a bit of a mouthful, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, Stephacanthus, like, just even to think, I mean, it's so fascinating that it's just the males or it seems to be just the males that have this thing. Yeah. Like, I mean... Just there's so many questions even from that. Like, what was it about their little weird island board thing that the females were attracted to? Like, what did it mean? Did they fight with it? Like, so many questions. Like, I'm not I'm not asking you obviously because you know these yeah. are still things that we're finding out. Um, but it's just so fascinating, so utterly fascinating. Yeah, I think it's just amazing at this time during the Carboniferous, so that golden age of sharks that I mentioned. Yeah, into the Permian period, so that's. A, time just after the Carboniferous mm-hmm. um, sharks and the you know their relatives just went off into all these strange different you know <laughs> body plans formations yeah. I guess just experimenting really and if it worked out then they survived and if it didn't work out they went extinct yeah. um, but when you when you see some of these animals it's just like what is that? How did yeah. you survive? How did you feed? Yeah, yeah, because Helicoprian as well, like, I can imagine finding that for the first time and being like, what on earth? Like, where did this even come from? Because it really is like it's just got, like, a circular sort of teeth yeah. in its mouth. Yeah, basically. So if you sort of imagine maybe an ammonite, so that spiral shape, mm-hmm. and then on the edge of that spiral, you have so almost triangular-shaped teeth mm. on that edge. So, so, like, how did it feed with that then? Do we know? Like, Again, yeah, we're still not 100% sure yeah. how it would feed. So there's been, over the decades, centuries actually, there's been interpretations of it sort of whipping it out, like some sort of whip, <laughs> and back into its mouth. Oh there's been um, kind of similar to, like, um, sawfish, you know, with the big rostrum, yeah. the peg-like teeth, yeah. maybe swimming around and shaking its head, so using its lower jaw to... Um, sort of stunning, you know, confuse some of the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've now realised actually it was inside of the mouth. Yeah. And perhaps might have formed like a scissor-like action yeah. whilst eating. How bizarre. Like, how <laughs> <laughs> strange. And I just love the idea that they're just all like um, experimenting with how far can we go with it. Like yeah. a really psychedelic time for sharks and, you know, yeah. their relatives. And then the next period that you you mentioned it briefly there is the Permian, Permian and Triassic periods. And there was a mass extinction around this time, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, the Permian period leading into to the Triassic, and there was a mass extinction event. And this is the biggest mass extinction event that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. So um, they're about ni- just over 90% of all life on Earth. Wow. So both in the seas and up on land went extinct. Oof. So it's often referred to as the great dying. Um, so we're, there's some, a variety of different reasons why things went extinct at that time. Mm-hmm. Typically with extinction events, it's never just one factor. Mm. It's a combination okay. of different things. So there was increases in the climate and temperature, both in the oceans and the climate in general. Uh, there was much more volcanic activities um, at this time. And also there was less... Um, coastal seawaters so if you think about the coast today you have a lot of coral reefs there for example there's a wide variety of life that live quite close to to the coast and mm-hmm. um, not just in the deep oceans so because of changes in plate tectonics so the different continents coming together and breaking apart and um, that all, all sort of played um, this effect into this great dying basically mm-hmm. um, however sharks survived 
there was many groups did go extinct, but also there was a subset that survived. Um, and probably because they were um, they lived out slightly deeper in the oceans mm-hmm. and also eating a wide variety of food. So if you're very specialised, you could only live in a, often referred to as the Goldilocks zone. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you're much more likely to go extinct if there's these dramatic changes in climate. Whereas um, if you're sort of more eat a wide variety of foods, you can tolerate you know, a bit more changes in your temperature and then you're much more likely to survive. Because mm-hmm. it's not just um, about the conditions, it's also what these animals would be feeding on mm-hmm. uh, um, as well. So there was a few um, lineages that made it through uh, this into the Triassic period. And that brings us up into the... It took a long time, actually, for life to recover after this extinction event. Mm -hmm. That then takes us up into the middle of the Mesozoic period, which is probably the most iconic time (laughs) period. So that's the Jurassic. Yeah. The Jurassic period. (laughs) So this is where the dinosaurs first appeared. Um, And just, I I think a lot of people think that the biggest extinction occurred around, you know, when the dinosaurs went extinct. But in actual fact, it was, you know, a long time before that. And sharks survive that. So there you have it. If you want to survive a mass extinction, make sure that you eat your very diet. Yes, yes. (laughs) Don't be too fussy. Can you talk a little bit about um, the Jurassic period then? Yeah, so the Jurassic period, as I said, is probably one of the most iconic periods um, Mm -hmm. in the Earth's history. But also um, it was very iconic for sharks as well because the Jurassic period, so going back about 200 million years, maybe 150 million years ago, um, this is where a lot of the lineages and families of sharks that we have swimming in our oceans today mm-hmm. actually evolved from. Mm. That's when they first started coming onto the scene. Now, the um, dinosaurs were busy stomping around up on land, but the seas were, again, teeming with life, and they had recovered again. So we had um, large marine reptiles that would be swimming in the seas. So things like ichthyosaurs, so look basically like a, these are reptiles, but we do had a similar body plan to a dolphin. Mm-hmm. Um, plesiosaurs, so um, big long necks, um, flippers, and pliosaurs as well. So pliosaurs would have looked some crocodile-like skull mm-hmm. um, with big flippers, all with big sharp teeth, basically. Were they the massive ones? Yes. Yeah, so the, the one that's in... I hate to bring this up because I know it's not the the most accurate film in the world, <laughs> but the the one uh, in Jurassic World, so the more recent one where they're all watching it as if they're at Sea World. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a mosasaur. So again, another one uh, of these large marine reptiles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, coming up to, I think it's trying to eat. I'm guessing it's meant to be a megalodon or a, maybe a, a white shark. I'm not sure. I, th- I think on, it's a white shark that they've got in there because I'm, I'm very. I mean, I've not seen the latest one, um, but I. I'm surprised that they didn't put megalodon in any of the. But, uh, but I guess, would megalodon wasn't around. No. Then, uh, so maybe they stopped them for other things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, because I was going to say maybe they they did tend to go a bit more scientifically accurate for that. <laughs> Apparently not. But yeah, so there were lots of there were lots of large reptiles around. Yeah, so yeah. they had these uh, large marine reptiles, um ammonites, they're a really iconic fossil, the spiral mm. shape animals, mm-hmm. belemnites, they're sort of long and straight. And in life they would have had tentacles sticking out the bottom. Mm-hmm. So they're related to modern day squid and um, octopus. Mm-hmm. But alongside that there was lots and lots of sharks as well. So one of my favourite sharks from this time period is a shark called Hybodus, mm-hmm. um, which has different types of teeth. So the teeth at the front are kind of grasping dentition, so they're quite sharp and small, sharp and pointy, uh, perfect for maybe grabbing a hold of a small slippery fish. Mm-hmm. And then towards the back of their jaw, they change shape. So they tend to get a bit more longer, elongate and flatter. So they're not that stereotypical sharp, bitey teeth, uh-huh. but more crushing and grinding. So probably would have been quite happy eating ammonites as well. Mm-hmm. So that again, they could have that sort of like varied diet. And, and we saw some of those um, teeth fossils out in the collections. You showed me some of them, and you can see the difference, like as you go along. Um, it's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, And another great thing about the Jurassic period at this time is that that is when um, their jaws become disarticulated. 
So if you think about our lower jaw, we can move it forward and back, side mm-hmm. to side. Mm-hmm. Um, if we try to do that with our upper jaw, it's fused with the rest of our skull, so we can't do that. Mm-hmm. But sharks' upper and lower jaws, they're able to protrude, extend out. Mm-hmm. They can take a, basically a bigger bite are much more likely to capture their prey. So this was where that actually feature more evolved during the Jurassic period. Mm, Interesting. And I mean, the goblin shark being the prime example of that, right? Great example. Yeah, (laughs) can fire, fire literally fire their jaws out and uh, grab onto the fish. Definitely taking it to the extreme. (laughs) Then we go into the Cretaceous period. so in my notes here, I've got meteorite and global warming. Yeah. So is this referring to the extinction that killed the dinosaurs? Uh, so a bit of a mixture. So um, the Cretaceous period followed the Jurassic period. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the end of the Cretaceous is probably, as we spoke about, the most iconic extinction event that's happened. Yeah. So it's where the meteorite hit the earth and that's thought to be responsible for killing off the dinosaurs along with about 60 to 65 percent of all life Mm -hmm. on the planet at that time however some of the research that i've been doing here at the museum is focusing specifically on the later part of the cretaceous period um and this is a time where um the earth the oceans actually heated up quite significantly Mm -hmm. Um, and this is preserved we find the fossil teeth preserved in the chalk so people think of the white cliffs of dover yeah. very iconic yeah. and that's crammed full with loads and loads of different types of fossils including lots of sharks teeth mm-hmm. so what we can do is because sharks have thousands of teeth as we've already discussed yeah we can take measurements from sharks teeth to use as a proxy for body size mm-hmm. um so what we and the prediction is basically as the oceans get warmer things get smaller and as oceans get cooler, things get bigger. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very generalistic. Yeah. Uh, but we sort of thought, well, why not try look at some fossils to see if that's actually true? Mm-hmm. So I've been, along with some colleagues here at the museum and some uh, former master's students, mm-hmm. been looking at different types of shark just to try and see and work out, well, how were they affected by this climate change? Mm-hmm. So some of them weren't all that um, badly affected. Other groups um, were significantly impacted. But overall, all of their numbers tend to reduce. Okay. So their abundance uh, reduces um, as it gets much warmer. And then as the um, oceans start to cool again, again, this is going over about 40, 50 million years. So a very long time scale. Mm -hmm. And as the oceans get cooler again, their numbers start to come back. Now that's then leading up to the end of the Cretaceous period where this meteorite um, hit the... Um, hit the world so and um, the sharks were already experiencing things in the oceans were already going through some difficult times mm-hmm. and i guess the meteorite was sort of the final nail in the coffin right uh, so to speak yeah but one of the areas that i've been very fortunate to go to this area in morocco and some colleagues um, have done more research on this um, it's in northern morocco a place called karibga they actually mine for phosphates so if you weren't looking for the fossils there, along with local people um, as well, working with the communities there, it'd be getting ground up for phosphates. But what's beautiful about this area, so imagine a sort of quite a deserted um, sort of landscape. Mm-hmm. You can run your hand over the top of the sediment and you find lots of like little pinpricks and those are shark's teeth. Oh, wow. Uh, we can dig down and um, we're basically going back in time. Each layer is a different age of rock. And then mm-hmm. we can find different types of shark's teeth included in these rocks. And then by studying them, this um, specific locality in Morocco, we actually go through that mass extinction event. There's been some work done here at the museum to basically, you know, how do shark communities respond to that extinction event? Mm-hmm. And again, it goes back to what I mentioned about previous extinctions. Those animals, those sharks that had a very varied diet, eating lots of different types of food, so perhaps um, squids alongside fish, mm-hmm. they were and typically smaller in size, were much more likely to survive that extinction event, whereas the larger predatory sharks um, that were at the top of the food chain, mm-hmm. only eating you know, perhaps big uh, other sharks, big fish, they went extinct. Right, okay. Um, you know, so again, you know, showing that diversity 
um, as well. And I think that's um, you're going back to sharks have survived um, by big mass extinction events. And it's because of that diversity, because they're living in different types of environments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got sharks living in river systems in the deep oceans mm-hmm. um, on the coast, you know, all over the world. So by um, overall, sharks as a group are much more likely to survive, although several of their families or species will go extinct. Mm-hmm. You did mention large predatory sharks. Yes. And I can't do a podcast episode <laughs> on prehistoric sharks without bringing up perhaps the most iconic predatory shark. I mean, we've talked about some pretty awesome ones um, already, which are my personal favourite, um, Helicoprion being one of them. Um, <laughs> but I can't let you get away without talking about Megalodon. Um, because I know people would be screaming at me through <laughs> <laughs> through the podcast episode um, if I didn't ask you about that. Um, so what do we know about Megalodon? When did Megalodon exist in the timeline? So Megalodon, um, or to give it a scientific name, would be Otodus Megalodon, mm-hmm. uh, probably more commonly referred to as the Meg, <laughs> <laughs> um, was swimming around in the oceans for about 13 million years and went extinct about three and a half million years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, the name Megalodon actually means big tooth. Makes sense. Um, yep, yeah. <laughs> and when you see these teeth, they're, you know, the size of your hands. They're uh, large, triangular in shape um, with a serrated edge. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, they've still got a very sharp tip. And they have been known to even bite me from times and drawn blood. <laughs> <laughs> they're like biting you from beyond the grave. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, is that just because they're so? Some of them, are, some parts of them, are so sharp. Yeah, some of them are just so well preserved. It almost looks like the um, they're definitely fossil fossilized, um, <laughs> but they're still so sharp. Um, probably because they were just buried so so quickly, we- and they've not been washed around at the bottom of the sea floor, for example. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you showed me some in the collections as well, and it's insane how heavy they are for one, and the size of them. You wouldn't want to come up against a mouthful of those things, <laughs> let alone just one. And it's it's pretty pretty incredible. And um, so so why did they need teeth so big? What kind of um do we know what they used to feed on? Yeah, so again we've got some fossil evidence for this. So with uh, their teeth being big, triangular in shape, serrated, um, you know, they're going to be eating big, fleshy, meaty things. That's what their teeth are designed to do. Mm-hmm. So things like whales, um other cetaceans and um, probably other sharks as well um, and we know they were definitely feeding on whales because we've got fossil evidence of whale bones that have been bitten into by megalodon mm-hmm. um, so that's a really great thing so not only can we assume based on the shape of their teeth what they would be eating and also what other animals were around at the same time we've got the fossil evidence against that detective story, piecing it together, mm-hmm. the fossil evidence of whalebone with megalodon bite marks. And the megalodon, like you said earlier, we're lucky enough to still have sharks around that we can possibly compare prehistoric sharks to. Um, and a lot of people compare megalodon to great whites. I mean, in the movies, that's what they're always portrayed as, is just yep. basically like a massive great white. How how much truth is there to that comparison? Yeah, so actually for um, a long time, scientists thought that Megalodon actually evolved into the modern day great white, white sharks mm-hmm. that we have today. And it goes back to comparing the shape of their teeth and what they look like and making those comparisons. Yeah. Um, however, if you take a closer look, there are subtle differences uh, between them to do with the shape and also how um, not just the, the triangular shape but also their uh, width and depth mm-hmm. um, as well. Uh, not only that, we're now also finding um, fossils of um, the, the great whites um, shark fossils preserved alongside megalodon. Ah, so we can actually, you know, we're very confident now that actually they're from two completely different uh, families, uh, different lineages. And when megalodon went extinct, its whole lineage, that megatooth shark lineage, 
or something extinct. Mm-hmm. That detective work again coming in there. So they had they had different ancestors. They were from completely different lineages. Yep, and yeah. they just happen to um, end up. There's some theories now and some papers coming out where uh, people have proposed that um, the Great White, um, or the ancestor to the modern-day Great White, was actually in competition or competing alongside Megalodon for different food sources. Mm -hmm. And that might have led to perhaps one reason, although, as I said, with any extinction, lots of different reasons why an animal goes extinct. But that um, bigger competition Mm -hmm. alongside each other. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. But why, why did megalodon go extinct i know i know you've mentioned there's a possible theory for the a possible theory that the you know the great white or the ancestor of the great white might have outcome outcompeted megalodon and that might have been one factor but what are some of the other factors um, so towards the end of megalodon's reign so to speak um, <laughs> in the oceans and um, their numbers were dwindling we find less and less fossils towards the end of that time period um, probably due to climate change again it always sort of comes back to um, to do with changes in the, its environment hmm. so the oceans were getting much cooler we know that megalodon like quite warm tropical waters because that's typically where we find a lot of their teeth it's round about what would have been the tropics and mm-hmm. um, so changes in climate uh, food um, shortages and um, competition with other animals um, as well so we're still not a hundred percent sure but the great thing about paleontology and science the more fossils we're finding mm-hmm. the bigger this picture is that we're building up yeah um, and yeah there's so many different groups working on actually megalodon and it's um, the reason why it went extinct that i'm pretty sure within you know the next few years there'll be um other theories mm-hmm. and more evidence put forward mm-hmm. about its extinction yeah because there, there is a i'm not sure if there's more than one now but i know there definitely is one well-preserved vertebrae like the one that you showed me and it's like the size of a dinner plate. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it in person? I've not, unfortunately. I've just seen pictures of uh-huh. it. And that's in a museum in Europe, I believe Belgium. Yeah. I think. Um, and that is where some of the more recent studies to do with the size and what Megalodon might have looked like was based upon. Was basically using this. Um, there's, they've got several vertebrae, almost mm-hmm. like its entire vertebral column. Mm-hmm. So they were then able to scan that. Uh, and model it to try and work out how big megalodon would have been now up until they did that using the vertebrae it was very um we were only able to estimate the size of megalodon based on their teeth mm-hmm. so again it's using that modern day comparison sharks are still around today we can take lots of measurements from them yeah from their teeth the length of their bodies and basically come up with different equations to try and work out how big megalodon would have been just by looking at their teeth and partial jaws that have been preserved. Mm -hmm. So how how big are we talking? So we reckon megalodon was probably between 15 to 18 metres in length. So longer than a bus. That's a big shark. Yeah. (laughs) That's a big, big predatory shark. And I do have to ask this, is there, well, I mean, we've already kind of answered it in that megalodon almost, well, definitely has gone extinct. <laughs> yes. But for those of for those people who have watched recent YouTube videos, you know, have you seen them where it's like twelve reasons why megalodon is still alive, or the yes. the films where the meg is just hanging around in deep water, <laughs> waiting for unsuspecting scientists to rediscover well, it? You know. <laughs> why Why is it that megalodon? most likely couldn't exist in current day or doesn't exist so um we only ever find fossil evidence we only find fossil teeth for example Mm. now we know that sharks constantly replace their teeth they've got this conveyor belt system Mm -hmm. all the megalodon teeth we find are fossilized there's no recent teeth they've gone through a fossilization process Mm -hmm. which typically can take you know hundreds of thousands to at least a million years plus to undergo that whole fossilization process. Uh, similarly, something that's you know 15 meters plus in the oceans, even though there are parts of it we might not have explored, and um, that's going to be needing to be eating an awful lot of food. Yeah. <laughs> so again, we, we're not finding any of the evidence um, of that. Um, also mm. in the oceans, it's very cold. 
um, the deep oceans and it's very much uh, extinct. <laughs> I mean, I would love to be able to see a megalodon, a real life one, uh-huh. preferably from a distance, <laughs> uh, just to actually like see what it would have looked like. Uh-huh. Um, but it's definitely very much extinct. We've talked a lot about what sharks used to look like and when they existed and what the world looked like when they existed, but what can we learn about the present day from what we know about the past? Yeah, so I think the great thing about geology, so the study of rocks and uh, fossils, paleontology, is that if we go back through the Earth's history over 4.5 billion years, that's an awful lot of history and mm-hmm. a lot of things have happened during this time. So we can go back, look at the rocks and, and the fossils and basically read them like a book. Yeah. You know, I mentioned during the Cretaceous, so an area that I'm currently working on, mm-hmm. there was a period of global warming. So what happened to those sharks? What happened to the other fish and animals that were in the oceans? Look at that and can we then use that to help predict what's going to happen in the future? Mm-hmm. You know, so um, obviously we're aware that the Earth's heating up and, you know, oceans are getting warmer. Um, Let's go back to a different period in history. When did that happen previously and what happened to those animals and plants? Mm -hmm. So I think that's the great thing about paleontology. It's looking at those time periods. It's, as you mentioned earlier, it's like a little window into this ancient world, getting a little time slice, studying them, finding new fossils, new rocks and interpreting that and then using that to help predict what's happening in the oceans today and what will happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, like you said, you know, the, the Earth has experienced climate changes before and extinctions because of that. And we were discussing a little bit earlier, um, we try not to go f- too far down this route, but we were like, you know, it, it will happen again. It's just humans are making this happen quicker Um, but there's a lot that we can learn from what happened to sharks and their relatives previously that we can use to predict what's happening now or what will happen in the future Um, which is really really interesting and I'm not sure this is quite a difficult question but if there was one thing that you wish people knew about fossil fish what would it be? Oh gosh Um, (laughs) so difficult I think for me, it's just the sheer diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, often when people think of sharks, you know, most people's automatically goes to something like a white shark. Yeah. You know, big predatory sharks. But it's just, you know, going through the whole history, we've spoken about some of the weird and wonderful ones. So things yeah. like Helicoprian, um, Hybodus, different fin spines sticking out, uh, different shaped teeth. Just the sheer diversity of all this ancient life um, so I think we're probably up to about 4,000 to 4,500 species of shark that's ever existed. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's an <laughs> awful lot to sort of get your head around. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. I yeah. mean, as human beings, we tend to be a little bit biased and we think that we've been around much longer than we yeah. have, but we're actually a really, really recent addition. Um, even though we've had quite a big impact, we've... we've you know, fairly new to the scene. Yeah. Um, I think there's like a sort of famous uh, diagram. It's basically a 12 hour clock and you've got to go like all the way till about sort of 10.30 before you get the first, so 10.30 p.m. say for example, (laughs) before you get the first life on earth. And then actually humans are like two seconds to midnight. (laughs) Obviously the clock's not stopping, it's going on. Yeah. But if you sort of put that into perspective, yeah, it's like sort of two seconds. So very much... A blip of the eye, uh-huh. uh, geologically speaking. Yes, yes. Sharks have been around much, much longer than we yeah. have. Um, but I, it's been so utterly fascinating to talk to you, and I could honestly spend, you know, entire days just listening <laughs> to you talk about what weird and wonderful, uh, not only you know shark species, but also just like the environment and what the seas were like. I could honestly talk to you all day about that. <laughs> And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I do have one final question for you. And that is, if you could be any species of shark, ray or skate in the world, and I have to say for you, any time period, <laughs> what would you be and why? Oh, 
This is a really difficult question. I think one of the most difficult questions I've ever been asked. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so can I cheat and maybe have a couple? Oh, yes. Yes, I think you can. Um, I can let, so let from, you away with that, with uh, 45,000 species. Yeah, so yeah. The, the fossil um, part, of, part of the world. I think it's going back to something like a helicoprian or maybe a megalodon, just mm. to actually see what what we think it looked like, how it behaved, what it ate, how it interacted. Is it actually true? Because mm. a lot of it is, um, you know, it's based on evidence that we can find, but there is still a little bit of interpretation that we take on board from, say, modern animals mm-hmm. and environments. But it would just be so interesting to go back and get a little, a proper sneak peek into that time period. It would be, I agree. And I think, because I've often thought, like, if I got transported back in time, like, you know, obviously as a scuba diver or something, it would be utterly terrifying to not be a shark in that environment yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think megalodon is a good answer because you could definitely <laughs> yeah I would be able to it, it come back and put the world to rights all about megalodon <laughs> <laughs> and experience it although to be fair if I would probably like try and go into the deep sea and hang on just to just to yeah, prove people true, like yeah. me and you right um uh, or prove us wrong even yeah. um Emma it has been so wonderful to talk to you Thank you so much. I'm sure our listeners will be on the edge of their seats listening to this because it is just such a fascinating world. Um, and yeah, and thank you also for showing me around the collections and things. No, you're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle that you can hear right now is by David Knight. Thank you so much to Emma Bernard for having me at the Natural History Museum, showing me the collections, letting me hold megalodon teeth in my hand and chatting to us all about prehistoric sharks. That's such a long history to go through and we really, really appreciate your time and your knowledge. If you'd like to find out more about Emma and the Natural History Museum, you can find links to that in the show notes of this episode. And thank you at home for listening. If you have any questions you would like answered on the podcast, any topics you want us to cover, or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch. You can do that by emailing isla at saverseas.com or you can get in touch with us on social media. We are at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and at Save Our Seas on Twitter. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we'll see you next time.